0: Welcome to episode number five of the It's Worth a Thought podcast and thank you for listening today and we're so excited to bring you this episode. Uh, We were joined this week by Keith Verberg. Keith is the executive director of the Christian Counseling Center and he does some work in some Christian universities and and schools and works with the community and he joined our uh, podcast today to talk about anxiety and depression and he brought really just a wealth of experience and uh, expertise on the topic and uh, I know this episode is going to be a help to you. So many different
1: areas we could go off with this uh, topic. And I think Keith did an excellent job in kind of drilling down on the difference between anxiety and anxious thinking. And anxiety is something that we all deal with. It's natural, it's normal, and it's good. But when that overwhelms us and overtakes us and turns into a thought pattern that controls us and then defines us, that's when we have uh, some problems. And so I thought Keith did an excellent job uh, with that. And then not only telling us what the problem was, but trying to offer some first steps and solutions.
0: Yeah, and perhaps you are someone who struggles with um, anxiety or depression, and maybe you're not. I think either way, this would be a helpful conversation for you to listen to. Uh, Keith shared some insight um, on how to be a friend to people who are struggling. I think in the world we live in today... Either you yourself are struggling or you know someone close to you who's struggling with mental health and anxiety problems. And so he really shared some things that were helpful to me in understanding how can we be a friend, how can we be a help uh, to our, our loved ones, our friends, our family members who are struggling with anxiety. Um, he really kind of drilled down on that idea that Everyone needs someone, a safe person to talk to. And he, he helped me to understand how I can try to be that safe person uh, to the people in my life. And so I think um, w- no matter what side you fall on, whether it's something you yourself struggle with or you, you know people who struggle with this as well, this will be a, a helpful conversation for you. As always, it's our desire to share with you a biblical perspective for you to consider.
1: And anxiety is something that, like Pastor Levi said, is we all deal with or in our life with somebody else. And so it's worth a thought to look at a biblical perspective on anxiety and depression. So it's always our desire uh, and it's worth a thought to look at things from a biblical perspective. And today we have a topic that is very relevant in our world today, Um, talking about anxiety and depression. Anxiety is something that we all deal with, uh, maybe different levels and different ways and how it uh, comes out in our life, but something that we either deal with and we deal with people in our lives that struggle with these things. And so we're excited today to tackle this topic of anxiety and depression from a biblical perspective. And we have a guest with us today, and our guest is Keith Verberg, from the Christian Counseling Center, and he's here to shed some light from a Bible perspective and a practical perspective on anxiety and depression. I want to welcome Keith to our show or program, and let him start out by introducing himself and tell us a little bit about yourself,
2: Keith. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity um, to be here. It's always uh, nice when when uh, people feel you know what you're talking about. We'll see, I guess, by the we'll end of We'll find out in a minute. Just give us that's a minute. true or not. Um, But it is. It's always nice to be able to share, especially when it's your work and what you do. Um, You know, it's always a a blessing to be able to to do that. So, yeah, I'm I'm Keith. I'm uh, currently, I live in St. Catharines. The Christian Counseling Center has, uh, I'm the executive director, but also a counselor there. Um, We have offices in uh, Lambeth and in Burlington. And we also have a satellite office now in Fergus where we go in once a week. Uh, plus, we go into a Christian high school in Hamilton and then Redeemer University where we, we have support services uh, for young people, and uh, um, that's something that's very dear uh, and close to my heart, too, because I think a lot of when it comes to also mental health and illness, um, there's still a lot of shame and stigma, and, and that's, that's switched a little bit with even something like mental health, like Bell Let's Talk. Um, And that's why even, too, some of that awareness is there. But sometimes it's still difficult to go in. Or uh, the studies say that, on average, somebody with depression will wait 10 years before reaching out for help on a counseling level. Um, So if we can get into the schools and get young people also more comfortable talking about those things, um, that's an exciting thing. So. So I'm from St. Catharines, I'm married. Uh, Miriam's here with me this evening, and we have five children. Three are married, two still at home. I have two grandchildren. I just visited them this afternoon in Strathroy, which is nice when we come this way. Um, and so that's sort of uh, where we're at that way. And then other that I think is important. So I grew up on a dairy farm uh, in Blythe, Ontario. Maybe you know where that is being here. That's north of London, about an hour. Um, And that was a real blessing for me, just having that country life. But on top of it, it was a family farm. So my opa and then my uncle and dad became partners on that farm. So my grandparents were right there. And then another uncle was right next door. So I lived in the context of actually having multiple parents. Um, And my friends were my neighbors, were my cousins. And so pretty much my whole life, all my family was within a half hour of my place. So there was a lot of family functions. And, but that was also the, the, the blessing of that I see now is that it was a very supportive family. They were, they were mentors. They were, it was healthy relationships, which now that I'm you know, doing a lot of counseling, where that, that's not necessarily so common. So a lot of positive things for me that I think also helped me, you know, and even in terms of things like anxiety or how do you navigate through some of those things, um, that was good. Then, then I let, went away, did uh, my undergrad at uh, Redeemer University, um, and I actually was a teacher first. I taught for 20 years within the Christian school system, first in Fergus uh, area, Guelph, and then uh, in the St. Catharines area, and that's sort of why I'm there. And then I, I later went on and did my master's in counseling psychology, so that's where that came in, and then an opportunity to work at the center. Um, and, and that actually was out of a result of me burning out as a teacher. Oh, wow. So I have some personal um, experience with anxiety, depression, um, and, and how did that all come about? So maybe that'll play out a little bit too tonight and, and how, you know, so, so I understand some of those things. Uh, and, and that's one of the factors that sometimes it's situational. Um, uh, and, and yeah, how, how your own life story plays into that.
3: Yeah. Did that lead you into counseling or was that?
2: Yeah. Oh, I think so. Like, um, so part of that was, I was just, I was a very driven person, Part of that is I was born with a physical disability, um, and so I I love sports, but I have a club foot. And so that made me look very awkward and uh, not very uh, gifted in the sports and things, but I loved it, I had a passion for it. I still remember a moment where I came home devastated, I didn't make one of the elementary school teams, and and my mom was in her comforting, also said, well, you may never be able to do that. Like, that, that might be part of your limitation. And there was a little thing that I still remember, I didn't say it out loud, but I went, oh yeah? <laughs> I'm going to make the team. Yeah. And it drove me, and that's why literally I was the guy that would be outside throwing a baseball, tennis ball at the barn wall for hours at a time to get better. So then when in grade 11, I not only made the football team, I was the starter, and then at the end of the season I was MVP. Wow. That made that, see, I can do it. And then I turned it to academics. The problem is I turned it everywhere. Right. I started to just, and I call it like a juggler, a driven people can sometimes then, you start getting successful, I can do this, I can do this, I can do that. Um, and I had probably about eight balls in the air, whether that was church leadership, school teacher, coach, athletic director, father of five, did my masters and wow. didn't give anything up. And then my mom passed away on Christmas day, and the day after she passed away, I realized she was my hero, and she was my go-to person here on earth, my Jesus with skin on, I guess you might even say, (laughs) Um, and that just floored me. I had nothing in my tank to deal with that, so I think that's the burnout, and then I had to alter my life, and then I realized how stressful teaching was, (laughs) (laughs) and it became very difficult, and so I started to get frustrated in that position. Um and then I think there were just things that within that frustration it made me consider something different. If I wasn't frustrated, I wouldn't have leapt out of teaching into a whole different career because that was still a scary thing to do even though I thought it was, you know, the Lord's leading at that point. Um but that's just sort of a little bit of how even something good, I had success, but it just tipped over into I didn't see that I was I was, you know, basically my productivity was starting to get stolen. Um, and I didn't see it till it hit me and blindsided me. But that flattening out also that meant I had to look you know, to also God himself and say, okay, I need more than me to do this. Yeah.
1: You mentioned the stigma, sometimes it was mental health and maybe even anxiety or depression and those things. And we want to make sure everybody understands that uh, we want you to participate in the conversation today. We talked about before, we want this to be a conversation. And so uh, we want to, there if you're asking for somebody else in your life or yourself a question, please uh, let, let, let you know this is a safe place to ask your question and to bring us uh, those questions. We'll try to get to those uh, through the program. I think it's important for us to kind of define terms to start out with. So can you give us an idea of a definition of anxiety and anxiety? And depression, kind of the topics we're talking about?
2: Yeah, so first of all, those are very big terms. So we say anxiety, we say depression, and there's a lot in there. And even to try to capture all of that this evening, that's going to be difficult. And I think that's why, even too, sometimes the questions, then, you know, we'll leave time for that so that if there are particular things that I missed and, and didn't necessarily talk about, we can have that space. I also kind of want to make a distinction, especially um, I shared with you guys that I grew up in a, in a Christian home. Um, and went to church, as you know, and to Christian schools, and so so a lot of my upbringing was within the church culture and Christian culture. Um, so even a word like anxiety, I think I want to make a distinction between anxiety and anxious thinking, or even anxiety, anxiety disorders, because anxiety is actually something we all have. We're created with it. It protects us, and and if we only so if we only say do not, you know, don't if we hear do not be anxious, and the Bible is don't have anxiety. That's not going to be helpful because anxiety serves. That's your fight and flight or freeze reflex. It's a reflex. So if a ball comes at your head, you flinch. You don't think about it. And that's meant to keep you safe. What happens, though, is sometimes when things happen that are dramatic, like trauma, the the research is showing that it actually alters how your brain functions. And it functions differently. And what's really happening with anxiety is it's a a response to, uh, I'm not feeling safe. For most of us, if we get into a, a dicey situation that maybe even threatens, as soon as it's done, we relax. But sometimes, um, whether that's genetics or it's even just the situation itself, um, that mechanism of anxiety and that fight reflex—it it, just—it's always on. It stays on. It stays in protection mode, even when you're. And that's why things like panic disorders. Um, your, your brain's sending you a psychological phys- and there's physical symptoms that come with it that can interfere with that process. Um, so anxious thinking is just sort of where you can't. Now, anxious thinking also then is generally probably more future forward. Depression is kind of past, whether that's regrets or bad things that have happened, um, kind, kind of. And they, and they can go back and forth. Anxiety and depression can be linked. In fact, a lot of depression disorders or even depression itself is just sometimes prolonged anxiety. So I kind of use sometimes physical analogies because sometimes when we get into the emotional, uh, mental part and the spiritual, like it gets fuzzy there. But really on an emotional stance, it's sort of like even if I'm in my fight reflex, so something bad's happened to me, now I'm in protection mode. It's like physically holding your fists up, you're tense. And if I were to do this all evening, initially it's not a problem, but I'm going to get tired. And a lot of times long-term anxiety turns into fatigue, um, and, and then emotionally your body starts to let go. And then obviously the more it lets go, and then you feel out of control, That that's, so that's if I'm in protection mode because I feel uh, that's what's making me safe, and now my hands drop, that makes me feel more. And so really panic disorder is... I'm worried about my worry. I'm afraid of my fear. Um, and, and so that's, that's an element of it. So, so really, like, anxiety is a normal reaction. Anxiety disorders just become where your normal feelings of nervousness, um, you, they just get prolonged and they start to interfere with your day-to-day functioning. So if people can't go out anymore, um, they don't want to be in open spaces, they don't want to, you know, meet people, Um, that's where it sort of gets more into where it starts to interfere or if someone leaves with children sometimes if they get separation anxiety parent leaves they they, that's an attachment sometimes thing where then they start getting afraid of being left out or alone Um, depression itself though then is is it's a mood disorder Um, and that's different than sadness and grief Sadness and grief are things, again, that are natural. We're supposed to feel them. We're supposed to interact. Like, it's not wrong to be sad. Um, But if that sadness turns into something more prolonged, and it, again, interferes with function, you can't move. You can't get out of bed. You have physical symptoms that limit what you can do. Um, You can't concentrate. Um, So even sometimes maybe in church, right, you're hearing a sermon, but it's just bouncing off of you, um, those are kinds of signs of depression, um, and usually those then are prolonged as well, like they last for six to nine months or longer. So, so that's kind of a, a snapshot of it, if there's any follow-ups with so that. So what
3: would you say, what would be the difference between like uh, constant anxiety and say a panic attack?
2: Uh, well, panic attacks are, have much more severe physical and psycho- uh, physiological symptoms. So panic attacks actually... Um, a lot of people that experience panic attacks actually feel like they're dying. Mm. And many people, especially if they're older and they have panic attacks, they actually sometimes mistake it as a heart attack. So there can be a lot of, so there can be dizziness, um, chest pain, um, shortness of breath, feeling like they're choking, you might get hot flashes, chills, could feel like a fear, just, but the whole body just feels like it's breaking down. And so a lot of times, and that's why people will go, the, the doctors will run tests and they'll say there's nothing wrong with your, with your heart. And then, and then they have that stress conversation with people that sometimes people don't want to have that conversation or don't believe. And that's why, because the physical symptoms are so real. So even in terms of teens, that's why sometimes teens will faint in a class or they'll faint in a hallway. Um, and, and, and then that could be related to anxiety but it's also then embarrassing. So this is the problem. Somebody's already, accept- and if, especially if they're anxious about how do people see me, right? Do, am I accepted or not? And then, right, or, or that's why sometimes even with panic or anxiety, like if somebody doesn't want to be singled out and then a teacher says, hey, can you read this to the class? It, it puts them into a situation where their anxiety gets bigger. Once people have a panic attack now, because panic Anxiety usually has a reason, even positive anxiety. Like I used to always get a nervous stomach before I played hockey. I loved hockey. It was my body's way of mentally, I was getting ready, I get excited, and then I get this, that's called the butterflies in the stomach, or you know, you have to go to the bathroom or something. It has physical symptoms, but that's still positive. But if you have just this always this, but a lot of times it's situations like, oh, I gotta do a speech today, in front of the class or like here, I'm in front of a, like a lot of people wouldn't do this because it makes them too nervous. The anxiety of it gets, gets there. Panic, though, it comes unannounced. It drops out of the sky on people and, the, and, and, and it has anxiety roots. It's just when people don't understand their anxiety, don't know how that, or they just haven't dealt with it. But that's what makes it even worse because if I were to say, hey, you're gonna have a panic attack in a half an hour, I'm going to try to prepare for that. If you're in a panic attack, and then you, you don't remember to breathe, you, don't, you can't, everything just goes, and you never want to experience that pain again, so then you try to prevent. Uh, and so now you're tight, you're more tight, and then it's probably more likely you're going to have another one. And so sometimes acceptance is actually the solution. And that's why we're going to say, well, what's the, can you be cured from it? Well, not always. I can't promise somebody they're never going to have another panic attack. But if they can accept that they might, what we're trying to do is shrink and even make the experience of it less traumatic. So that's sort of what you're trying to do, both with anxiety and panic attacks. The more you try to control anxiety, the more it will fight you back. So that's learning, like, what does acceptance mean? And and of course, that's why a safe place a lot of times is important for that safe people. Um, how do I actually start dealing with it rather than it have it, you know, Mm -hmm. running my life instead of the other way around?
3: So you've already made a few mentions about, you know, everybody experiences anxiety, um, to some extent. Um, but like, what trends are you seeing in the frequency of anxiety? Is it getting greater? Is it, you know, especially during COVID, different things like that, what are you seeing from your perspective?
2: Yeah, so we'll use that term anxious thinking or anxiety disorders. Um, So this is a tough one because yes, there is some studies that are indicating people are under more or having more anxiety disorders. So if you look at research and studies, they are saying young people are struggling more. One in three tend to have that are from the ages 13 to 18 have anxiety disorders. Um, so between 2007 and 2012, anxiety disorders went up by 20% within that population. If you look at university students, same thing. In 2016, um, or in year 2000, if they asked university students if they felt overwhelmed by the work and, the, and what school all involves, in 2018, or 28, per, sorry, now I'm getting mixed up. i got to go back to 1985, it was 18% would say, yes, I feel overwhelmed. In 2000, it was 28%. By 2016, it was 41%. Wow. So that's saying numbers are going up. But I think that might be, we've got to be careful with that, though, too, because are they going up because the language of anxiety is what we use? So, so when I grew up, you didn't go out and say, hey, I, I was anxious today at school. Um, we didn't talk that way. In fact... I know within my own family system, if somebody had a mental breakdown, like all voices went hush. It, it would be, maybe the name was mentioned, maybe not, but oh, did you hear somebody had a mental breakdown? And then nothing more was said. Hmm. Well, that's sending a bit of a message that we don't talk about that. And that's the worst thing that could happen to you. So I think people that are, I'm 50, I'm gonna be 50, so people my age, older, like we didn't really talk about the feels so much. So something changed that way, too, is that feelings, or even, like I said, well, mental health, people have realized that it actually maybe wasn't so good, and so some change was made, and language was added, and, and now I'm so stressed, right? Like, you can talk about stress when you're a young person. You can say, I'm anxious. So I think then when you get a survey, do you have anxiety, people are going to say, yeah, whereas before, maybe they didn't. So the rates might go up just because of that, um, but I think there's also, I think anxious thinking has always been there. I think it's manifesting itself a little bit. Maybe younger people are, are talking about it sooner, which again, I think generally will be positive. But then I think at the same time, I think there's some things we've done culturally, and I would say even Gen X, we're probably responsible for that, that it's our kids and, and the younger kids that are having more of these anxious. And, and I think that's some cultural pieces that might be adding to that.
1: So do you think you could talk about it too much? Is there a time where you um, maybe, maybe put thoughts in people's head? Like, you know, if anxiety is always out there, then, um, then that becomes something that everybody has. Or is it something that, is there, that, have you gone maybe the other direction in that balance?
2: Yes, um, because also there are some social disorders or anxiety disorders that when you talk, so first of all, when you talk about it, it aggravates it. So even here talking about this topic, if you have it, I might be poking you all night. And that's, that's why, But that's why we have those words, trigger, right? Trigger alert. Now, again, how far does that go? Some people now see that as if you're triggered by everything, that's not necessarily helpful. But that is a reality. Or, again, some disorders. So I think anxiety is a very big umbrella and a lot of disorders that come out of it, like eating disorders, addictions. Um, I, I think a lot of those things are just people trying to, they use a physical thing to try to deal with their emotional issue. So again, where do those things come from? Sometimes trauma, sometimes abuse background, bullying. People are trying to cope with that negative experience, and then they turn to other things. But something like self-harm, for example, which is a, is a big issue within teen culture, it also has what's called the social contagious factor. And so what happens is when they may be depressed, or they may be struggling with mental health. well. They talk to somebody. Now, if their friend has no clue what an anxiety disorder is, they go, what are you talking about? Like, just stop it. And, 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 and so they end up, if they share with somebody, they go, I know exactly how you feel. I feel that way too. Well, they create this help bond, but the difficulty, especially with something like self, then they start sharing how they deal with it. It's like, well, this is what I do. I cut, and this is how you do that. Um, that can go to eating disorders, Sort of now, there's also conversations it's hard to have that conversation about it, but gender issues. In fact, that, that a lot of um, young uh, teens, female teens now are, are gravitating more to, to being transgender. And there's some thoughts on that, that why are they doing that is because if you come out as ch- transgender, there's a lot of support in culture right now mm-hmm. that you're not criticized for it. You're like, wow, good for you. Well done. Well, if your part of you is I need acceptance, I need people to, to, to love and surround me, that could be a way because the numbers are saying, well, well it's groups of friends all go transgender. Mm-hmm. Like that's something that's odd. Why, like all of them do it. And there's that sometimes that social piece that can mix thing, things up. And I don't think that's any different than other ones. Like maybe for males, it's even the smoking, because like i got to fit in. Again, smoking, a lot of times that's actually anxiety. People smoke to relieve anxiety. Um, it's not just necessarily to be cool. Or, so sometimes you're not aware that it can have links in the anxiety. And, and in guy culture, it's just you, still hard to talk about um, emotions.
3: So we're talking about talking about it, but like, and sometimes it does create a, a, a negative feeling and a negative downward trend, especially if somebody comes along and has the same feelings. But if you are someone that struggles with anxiety and the people around you don't, how, how would it be best for that person to then talk about that to somebody realizing that they, they need some help?
2: Yeah, well, I think, and that's sort of still where I think even, well, what can we all do better to help people with those situations? And I think sometimes that's part of that. Um, if you have a listening perspective rather than an expert or a teaching perspective. Um, so I think even in terms of church context, like when we have this word sin, we use it. Yeah. Okay, now sin's going to create shame feelings. Um, but if you don't have grace with that, That's going to be a problem if 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 all your theology is just you're a sinner and you're wicked. If there's no hope that comes with that, that creates a problem. Um, But also sometimes then the instructional element is as I have to teach, I have to fix it. Yeah. So a fix-it mindset is going to be different than a listening. And and there's a real good book. It's called "Don't Sing Songs to a Heavy Heart" by by Ken Hawk. And and um, that's the one I actually read when I was going through my burnout like um, and the grief, like a friend had given it to me. He 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 paints the picture of, well, what, you're never an expert on someone else's pain. And that's a really good start. And then he compared it to a house. He says, let's say you're going to go to somebody's house. There's protocols that we have, when we, and we know those protocols generally because of culture. Like if you were to come to my house for the first time, you wouldn't just walk in and, and start looking through the whole house. You're going to go, generally you're going to knock on the door. And if I invite you in, you're going to come in. If I keep you at that front stoop, because I'm not comfortable yet bringing you, I don't know who you are what you're doing here, then you're going to stay there. And pain is a lot like that. If, if, when you greet somebody that's talking about their pain, um, then, then you have to be the listener first. And when they invite you into the next room, that's a sign that they, they're letting they're starting to trust you and they're opening up, but it doesn't give you a right then to go into every other room. And I think church leaders really have to be careful with that because because I was a church leader and sometimes it's like, okay they shared one part of their story and that's hard like well now I need to know all the other pieces so that we can really patch this all up and and you end up barging into their bedroom and looking through all their drawers of pain, like their bedroom, and, and it's like that's not where you necessarily belong. And if the person keeps you in the kitchen for four years, you're in the kitchen, and that's okay. And, and that's the hardest part is we have sometimes in the North American culture too have this timeline um, that we have to go in. And so it's really that listening, being being somebody that can be like can hear and just support, not problem solve. And I think if, if you are a person then that has these things. You need to find a safe person who can listen. And, and so there are three types of people. This, and I would kind of give you a, uh, if you're out at a restaurant with a friend, and you say, hey, I've been having a really hard time this week, and this has been really stressful. And they say, hey, wow, look at outside. You know, it's really nice out there. Okay? That's the first type of person you'll come across. We're not talking about that. Okay? And that doesn't make them an evil person. That's just they're not there for you, in that way they can't be or they're not comfortable with it. Maybe they have their own story. That's just setting them off. The second person will listen, but then they'll give you a list of, hey, here's 15 things you can do. Like they're selling you a self-help book almost across the table. Okay, Again, they're trying to be helpful, but that's not what you need in that moment. You need the person that will put the fork down and say, oh, wow, tell me more about that. And they're inviting you to at least start with that. And I think that's why counseling tends to work because that's really what the counseling, the counseling is to try to create a safe space, right, where you can just share who you are. It's not about the counselor. It's about what, where you are. And counselors will say, well, they want to meet you where you're at and develop something that works for you. They're not, right, that's why even too, at that expert hat, I was a teacher and a church leader. I, when I became a counselor, that expert hat pretty much had to be thrown thrown out the door because it's bottom up it's not top down and that's why I think sometimes in church Mm -hmm. even with positions like pastors have positions of authority um, just by their task so sometimes that can be hard um, again depending on the pastor if they have a pastor's heart and a listening heart that really helps so that's the thing is you're looking and that's why if you don't have people in your life that are giving that, then, then sometimes it is the pastor. Sometimes it is a counselor then that there is a place where you can at least, at least start telling the story. When you share it first, it gets a little easier to share it again. But I would say in most, even the people with the most harsh circumstances or who have had traumas in their life, When they're ready to talk, I've found that a lot of times God has at least one or two people that are in their life already that are are ready to listen and can. And that might, like for for teens, like if it's hard to talk to a parent, well, maybe, right, Aunt Susan's really good at listening. Or, you know, the teacher that's a a good role model Um, a lot of times. and, And that's why, you know, looking for those person people and detecting who's a safe person. But that can be a real challenge if you haven't had safe people in your life. Like everybody seems like a threat. And that's your, again, that's your protection. That's your body saying we can't do that. So it's not always, that's why it's not always easy to take that first step.
1: He made a pretty clear distinction between anxiety, which is, you know, a part of all of us and normal and good and great part of our life and anxious thinking. So if we're talking about anxious thinking and that anxiety disorder, can you think of some biblical principles that would be very practical, um, some scriptures that we could maybe share with people from a biblical perspective to deal with anx- anxious thinking?
2: Yeah, well, there's one that just always comes to mind and and I think it's worth talking about. It's it's a very central piece, but I think, again, if you've grown up in the church, sometimes it gets misheard. And it's the one, do not be anxious. um, Because that sounds a lot like a command. Mm. And again, if your image of God is, well, God's looking for trouble and trying to get you, um, and it's like you screwed up because you're anxious... That's not, I don't think that's the message, but that's why you have to have that whole, like what's the whole view of Scripture and who is God? Um, because I think if you look at actually that whole text, it's, it's getting to something that's really important and that where is our identity. Mm-hmm. So I use that word sin. I think even if you separate sin into three categories, like there's, there's volitional sin, things you're choosing to do that aren't right, then there's suffering, Right. So if somebody's sinned against you, that's a different experience. Like you might be doing things now not so good, but if somebody, if it's because of pain or, or somebody was abusive towards you, that's a different experience. And then there's identity issues, like who am I and what am I all about. And that's why sometimes at teens they, they go through that rough period because they're trying to, to become independent. They're trying to shape their own life and, and what are their values. So that's all part of that. Um, but but that's that's a big part of it. But the do not be anxious and, and worry is if we really look at what Jesus is saying there, he says, look at the birds and look at the animals. And I care for them. And then he says something right after that that we can't lose sight of. He says, Are you not more valuable than they? And a lot of the things we struggle with is am I acceptable? Am I loved? Do people care? Do I have worth and value? Well, the, the, the Savior who's going to die for you because you have so, for God so loved the world, he sent his son. He's saying you are more precious. You're created in God's image. You have more value than the animals. So I, if I take care of them, I'm for sure going to take care of you, even if it doesn't maybe look like it in the moment. And it's actually then, I think, much, that's a safe message. That's saying you have value. I'm for you. That's really what grace, if you want to use a different word for grace or a phrase, grace is I'm for you. Mm-hmm. That's good. So, so, but that's why if your theology is God's against me, and again, if you've had bad authority figures or even especially father figures that, that didn't really demonstrate that, that, that can be difficult. But grace is really, and grace is the opposite of shame, Shame-based thinking makes you feel like I'm a nothing, you're not worth anything. And then he's really then, I think that's a big cosmic hug. Yeah. Like God has everlasting arms, it says in, in Deuteronomy. I think that's a concept. Like I can never get past his loving reach. Um, and so if people have failed me and, and the world has failed me, right, there, there's a savior that, that literally can't because he's infinitely bigger. So I think that's a big one for me. Another one that really helped me in terms of balancing things, because I think Scripture has a lot of paradoxes that can, right, can sometimes, like, be confusing. Um, Psalm 85, I think, is a really good one, again, for just who is this God? And it, and, and it says in Psalm 85 about God, it says, righteousness and peace kiss one another. So, and I think what happens is we tend to, whether, whoever you are, if you're a more feely person, you love the love pieces in Scripture. God's steadfast love, His mercy, right? He, he looks out for the poor and the disabled and, 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 and He's that God. And, and I say some churches start at Romans 8. There's no Therefore, there's no condemnation and they don't want to deal. Let's not talk about sin. That makes me feel bad. Uh, and so there is a part of God that is love, mercy, big time. But if I ignore the righteousness or if I only have righteous spectrum, that's putting God I'm elevating God. He's holy. He's sovereign. He's providential. That's truth and honesty and character and justice. Those are very important things. Yes. But if you have truth and justice and character without mercy, that's nasty business. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to make sure, like that's why God's odd. When we talk about sin and grace, kind of the book of Romans is dancing with those terms because we tend to go, oh, there's sin and then there's grace. Or I can be righteously angry, <laughs> right? Love people like, well, it says in the Bible you can be angry. Well, yeah, but if you're not doing it with the kissing mercy part, that's pretty harsh. Or if I'm mad at my kids today because they did something wrong and then maybe in a week I'll be nice again, loving, I'm, I have to keep those concepts also in my life, which is very hard to do. How do I blend those? That's what we're attempting to do in life, I think. So those are two biggies um, that, that come I'll, to mind. I want to go
3: back to your first point in which you were talking about the identity piece, and I don't mean to make this a creation evolutionist debate, um, but how has like, the survival of the fittest hurt people like this? Because realizing that Jesus Christ loves me regardless of who I am, Christ or God made me, as compared to, you know, hey, you're just another, you know, bunch of cells and we don't really care about you. How has that exponential, I would think it exponentially uh, worsens anxiety for people, especially if they don't feel like they're loved and needed?
2: Well, yeah, and I guess that's partly why I'm a creationist. (laughs) Um, Because I also, I don't quite understand, like, because even evolution then, it's all on chance. And, And to me, that... That doesn't have a lot of comfort within it itself, um, but I think that's why, like being created by somebody that in, like really invested in that too, and is is concerned about the creation, um, has comforting messages, um, and and that's why, in in spite of. And again, our suffering theology—that that can be difficult because why do bad things happen? It's complex, and I think that's part of it. Is some of these things aren't so easy to always understand. So if we're struggling sometimes with those concepts, um, that's got even love itself. So when I say love, what do you think? There's two parts to love that have to have balance in it too. So even sometimes, well, God's unconditional in His love. Well, yes, but He's also—we have to also be accountable. There's accountability in love. And I think that's that. Again, there's tension. There's always tension in those relationships. We don't always want to deal with the tension. Even in church, right? Well, we talk about the ideal. Scripture is the ideal. But the real, right? How do these things kind of match? If, if I don't talk about the gap that's in between those, that's part of that, too. So, um, yeah, evolutionary thinking, uh, it, 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 it To me, it just, it kind of doesn't have that hope piece that the gospel can bring in. But I think that's the same as, but just being religious doesn't either. And I think that's why sometimes, like even feelings, feelings can be, um, they're deceptive. Um, That doesn't mean you shouldn't feel them, but they're not always telling you the right thing. And, And I think with people that are depressed, what actually is going on is they feel too much of their feeling. Some people don't feel enough, they're too distant. And that's where maybe something like um, burnout can happen. It's because if people are too removed from you, which, or they say, I can't feel sadness, that's bad, um, That they'll remove themselves from it. Um, but if you go too deep into it, but kind of the, the secular world t- says, well, your feelings are your truest part of you. And so when you're feeling that, that's the genuine part of you. I would say a lot of times church people are on the other spectrum. It's like feelings are bad, especially if kind of the culture's saying, be really feely right? Then we go, whoa, no, you got to think. And, and I think churches are sometimes, well, that's kind of not righteous. Well, if we think our way through things, uh, we'll be okay. And, and so you just read more, study more, um, more Bible study, and you'll be fine. Um, and then don't think about bad feelings. Like, don't be sad. That's, you're supposed to be a joyful Christian. Well, joyful is not e- equal to happiness, so I say a Christ-centered, actually a Christ-centered it doesn't go into the good-bad spectrum, all or nothing, because we have a tendency then, right, to say, well, what's good? Okay, right? We have a list of it, but if we do that with our feelings, okay, well, happy, that sounds like joy. Yeah, I like that, but then I need an opposite. Well, sad's the opposite of happy, so uh, sad would be bad then. I can't be sad. I'm always working to happiness, I think a life centered in Christ does the opposite. It claims all the emotions. It says, where is my anxiety in Christ? Where is my sadness? Where is my happiness? Because if you get too far from the center of Christ, both with happiness and sadness, so sadness turns into despair and hopelessness. That's not a good equation. Happiness too far away from Christ, though, becomes self-gratification, and it's it's seeking instant. I need happiness now. I can't be patient, which is a fruit of the spirit. So I think that plays in that way too.
1: I have a real important question I want to get to from Facebook. Um, uh, Someone asked, how can you help family and friends understand what you're going through? So how do you
2: explain that? How do you get them to understand if you're going through something difficult? I I think it's, first of all, we have to admit it's hard to understand anxiety. And everybody's story will be unique. And if somebody hasn't, especially when, when it's, a, it's that ongoing, like if somebody has an experience where anxiety doesn't lift, it just sort of, or it drops out of the sky, I think there's just realizing they might not fully understand. But, but people don't have to fully understand to support. So I think that's why, what are, the, what are my markers of support? And if I say, well, if they, you, know, you don't understand me, can also keep us in that, until I'm fully understood, I can't deal with this or they're not on my side. Like, it's also not about getting people on your side. It's, and sometimes that's also patience. Um, and, and, and so I think that is one of the, the challenges. Uh, like, some people just, it, it's hard to wrap their head around it. Um, so you have to be patient with your expectation. But I think sometimes that is just, that's why you have to seek different people out for different circumstances a little bit. But I think just trying to be honest and, and just say this is... And I think most people that have got, I've counseled lots of people, they don't understand it. If you don't understand it yourself, it's going to be hard to explain it. But you still do the best you can. And if people have an ear and they want to, and, and, and if, if they're there for you in some way, they're there for you. And, and I think it's taking... And it's a journey... I use a phrase when I do speeches like this that sometimes helps is some of these, we call them in the the counselor world, wilderness journeys. Because again, we want quick fixes. Um, A wilderness journey is an analogy from the Bible that I'm trying to get people to think about the Israelites in the wilderness and that was 40 years. We're kind of going through a series right now on Joseph um, and time. We don't always, we read the story sometimes, we just read the story of Joseph and we don't realize that, well, that was about 30 years you know, or even, too, when, when he gets that dream that he tells um, to, the, to the butler and the baker, and he says, don't forget me, and the guy forgets him for how long, 20 years, or two years. Mm-hmm. Like, that's sometimes where we don't feel maybe people are responding in our time frames, both they're not getting better from their anxiety fast enough, or people aren't listening fast enough. Um, but I do think that if, if some family members aren't there for you, there will be others that will listen. It's just sometimes being courageous also and and trying to seek places out. And people will learn as they go to do it better too, I think.
3: All right, so if someone is listening to this program, they're tired of struggling through life and going through anxiety and depression. What is step one for them? How do they take the next step in helping themselves get better?
2: Well, I think a big one, is I've said it, is talk to someone. Find someone that you can talk to. Again, if you're saying, "But I have nobody in my life," right? There are lots of people out there that want to help, and that's where counselors come in, right? And if it's if it's in a situation too where you really don't feel safe, right? You you feel that you don't want to be here anymore. There are crisis lines even in this area, right? Reach out is something in this area for, for the. Um, I believe you're in Elgin. Is this Elgin County? Um, so that the, they have a web chat, they have phone lines. That even if you don't think anybody in your life understands, they're trained and and they're there. A lot of those are even volunteers that come because they want to be helpful. Um, So so that's it. If if it's even more severe that that you're planning to hurt yourself, there are walk-in supports. There's emergency rooms that you check in and, and you start having that conversation with somebody. So you don't have to carry it alone either. Like some of these things are sometimes too much for one person to carry. So if they can help... Um, I think prayer comes into that as well. If it's too hard for me to carry, there's a beautiful passage that talks about when Jesus says, my yoke is light. Mm-hmm. Now again, like that's why sometimes when you're in the midst of things, when you hear a passage about do not be anxious, like what are you talking about? It seems so strange. But the, it's, and I'm a farm kid, so I love the farm analogy stuff. And yoke right? That was what oxen, they would put a yoke over the oxen so you would have a team of oxen that would plow together. Now when I try to carry all my stuff by myself, life gets overwhelming. I've learned that if, and so we talk in church about confessing sin, I think we need to enter into a conversation about what does confessing emotion look like? And the Bible's full of it. It's called lamentations, it's called psalms, laments are in there. I need to pray my tears and pray my fears and just say to God, I can't, I need somebody. And I think that's, and if I sit and I listen and I wait for God's response, if I invite him to plow with me, mm-hmm. okay. then he's more than powerful enough to pull the plow. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think sometimes there are indications in our life where I'm still trying, I'm saying, okay, God, good, you're there, but I got this. And there are times when he just says, you need to give it all to me. So surrender is a piece there to that. But that's something that on a spiritual level, learning how to have a conversation with God and then listening. Sometimes the spirit responds and and, and you might get a text, you might get a picture, you might get a song on your heart. And even pay attention to that. If you've gone to church a lot, right, I, I for some reason every morning I wake up and during my shower time a song hits my head. I don't know why, where they come. Some of them are like, I didn't sing that. I sung that one when I was eight, but I've learned to try to listen to that one more because a lot of times there's some key instruction in that. So I think it's like those are things. Same with teens. Like sometimes with teens, if there's conflict in the home and that's difficult, there are kids helplines. So teens can can um, do that. There's a suicide prevention line. Um, those are things that if if you know whatever your need is, or set up a, an appointment with a counselor. Um, if the first counselor doesn't work, doesn't mean counseling doesn't work. Right. That means that match might not have been good, right? Every counselor has a personality. You have different perspectives. You even say, well, I went to a Christian counselor, and I thought it was going to be good. It's like, okay, Christians are just people. <laughs> and, they, and, and so some of that is you just might not connect with that person. So don't be afraid to, to try, you know, another person if the first go didn't go around. And, and so it's some of those kind of things.
1: So if you're looking for somebody to talk to and you can't find, you know, our church would like to be part of that. Um, we'd like to be uh, part of the solution for you. Um, and if you are if you have a bad experience with a pastor, it doesn't have to be a, a pastor from the church. It could be other, We have other godly people in our church that want to help you, that will just love you. Uh, again, I think what I pick up on from that is, and maybe this is the next question, is if we're trying to help someone who's struggling with that, one thing I've heard already you say is is just try to listen to them. Uh, even though you don't understand everything they're going through, it doesn't mean you can't listen to them. What else would you say to somebody if they know somebody that's going through a difficult time of anxious thinking, uh, they're really struggling with it, what can you do to help out to reach out to that person?
2: Yeah, so I think there's a number of keys with that. So first of all, be present, right? Be, be available, be present. Now that, right, and that's tricky, and I would say even, I would say then I'm, I'm going to maybe gear this, it works for all population, but for teens especially, like, um, be a friend, but not a counselor. Like, like, if you are a friend, be a friend to a person, but, don't, but sometimes with teens also, especially I would say with social media, and, and, and there's that, I think that's what's also creating some of the anxiety is, is the fear of missing out, but also that, okay, if a lot of times teens are going through their struggles, that that's a hard part of your life. And, and the nice thing about a lot of peers is their friends are trying to be that friend. The problem is when somebody's going through a real hard thing is they can't be your friend. They can't be there for you 24-7. And if at 3 in the morning you're texting and then they say, I need, and now you're up for three hours trying to counsel somebody, um, that, that's not going to work long term. And now you've got two people under duress and, and that's even what happens is a lot of times when people go in to help, they go in with one or two people, and then com- there's something called compassion fatigue. As people just get worn out. They, they don't put the boundaries there because they want to be loving, but they have to know, you have to be fair. You have to say, this is what I can do for you, but this is what I can't. And that's not abandoning your friend. But that's why if it's a big, something like bipolar disorder, that's going to be rocky road. They're gonna feel a lot of that you are rejecting them or that you're not enough for them, and you're not. But that's what happens is then what I, people try to help, they get overwhelmed, they pull back. Now the person with the disorder feels abandoned again and you get into a big cycle. So, so but being present, being patient, move at their pace. Um, Brené Brown has a real nice little video clip on YouTube that, about the difference between sympathy and empathy and she also has this analogy of, of sometimes we want to, if somebody's deep in the hole of depression, we want to just lift them out and rescue them. Um, her analogy is, no, you actually have to go into the well with them. And when they're ready to move, to walk out together. But that's not really cultural. Both church culture and North American culture, not, that's not how we do things. So it, it's also upside down thinking a little bit. Um, be an encourager. But help them be accountable because that's sometimes what people that are so they, it's, and that's why they might be playing the blame, everybody, it's everybody else, it's not me. Um, and it can have things that, it, but there's a bit of both. And so find out what they want and then keep them on their plan. And it's their plan, not your plan for them, even though, right, that, that's a hard balance. Um, I've said it before, Grace, I'm for you, especially people that have gone through trauma That's very important. Um, Yeah, I think those are big ones. So
3: So you've obviously said multiple times that this is a long road. And it's not something you can just flick a switch and that be the end of it. And so obviously, this is something that is going to take a long time, something that you need to be patient with, as you mentioned, multiple times. But how is it that we can take continual strides toward dealing and coping with those things? Um, Because obviously it's a part of our life. Um, It's, you know, as you've given the analogy, you you know, you duck to hit the ball. But when those things are constant, how do you deal with those on a regular basis um, when it's, when it's just, it seems to be a constant? How do you begin coping with those things?
2: Yeah. So, well, so I'll make a distinction because for some people it isn't a long journey. Right It can be like again, somebody can have a dramatic, even something that was difficult. they talk it through um, even two in counseling, sometimes one or two sessions is is enough mm-hmm. to just to get somebody shifting from where they were, um, but there are some longer journeys, and that's why again, it's very unique, it's very different um, and, and then some of that is just learning also some techniques like what what can you do to kind of calm and, and I think that's where emotional. Um, literacy isn't something we're taught a lot, I, I hope, and I think it's starting to happen. But even, how do I calm my brain down when it's in anxiety? So for example, deep breathing is very effective. Um, like I said at the beginning, um, future, fear of future, or regret from the past are, are kind of where depression and anxiety, they, where it doesn't dwell is present moment. So if somebody is having a panic attack, they could be sitting in a room like this and all of a sudden they feel they're not safe, but they are safe. And so sometimes how do I get my brain, so my emotional brain, that really what's happening with anxiety or anger even is it floods you. So it floods you, you have an upstairs brain, downstairs brain, the downstairs brain, which is kind of your survival um, brain, it floods and then rational stuff goes out the window. So if you've ever raged out anger, you've said things, your brain says you should tell that person this. And then when you cool down, you go, how did, did I say that? <laughs> That's because it's not much different than alcoholism, right, where you just you can't think properly. So you got to calm that down. When that brain is saying you're in danger, you're in danger, you have to bring yourself into the present moment. Two very effective ways are breathing deep. So four, breathe in four seconds, hold for four seconds, breathe out, because that puts the blood back to the core of your body. When you're in fight mode, all the blood goes to your feet, and your extremities, your heart rate goes up. So the first thing is i got to start calming myself down. So learning how do I calm, I go into dysregulation. That's what anxiety is. i got to get back to calm. The other thing is five senses, is look at things, five things. Smell, right, see, touch, taste, even sound. If you just listen to sound in and around you and try to stress and be anxious, your mind gets divided, can't do both. So that's sometimes just a very effective thing to try to, stay calm in the moment.
1: We do have another question here real quick. Um, How can you overcome anxiety by always thinking what if? So maybe the anxiety that's caused by, uh, you know, not really what's happening, but what could happen? And what if this happens? What if this happens? And that causes present anxiety because of future possibilities, maybe?
2: Yeah, which we all do. And that's why for some people, though, it's harder to turn off. But I think so There's a couple of things with that. Sometimes that's just you've learned a pattern of thinking. It's called catastrophic thinking or worst-case scenario thinking. Sometimes we just go to the worst-case scenario and say that's what's going to happen, and and then they just focus on that. There's two things to do with that. Do the math. So first of all, even if you've had hard things in your life, how many times in your life has worst-case, the thing you were afraid of happening, did it actually happen? Now, if you're batting 100 on that, that's really difficult. But most of us aren't in that. Like, again, when when you ask that question to people, a lot of times it might be 2%. If it's 2%, then treat it like 2%. Don't make it 100% of your thinking. How do you do that? I I know what I do for myself because I have a tendency to do that. I tend to go worst case scenario. So we were going home one time. My daughter was looking after our dog. It was a new dog. um, and she had taken it out for a walk, and a little dog came by and uh, attacked our dog. And our dog, it was a little dog, and our dog decided none of that's happening, and it, it went to town on that dog. And so we get this phone call that our dog just did this, and the neighbor got our name and our address. Okay, worst case scenario thinking, what is going on? Oh, no, right? Lawsuit, dog's going to have to be put down, right? This is not good. Um, but then you have to do the other scenarios, too. So, so in my mind, that's where I first go. I go, oh, that's not bad. That's going to be, it's going to be awful. But I say, well, wait a minute. And then I look at the situation again. I said, first of all, my dog was on the sidewalk with my daughter and was on the leash. Their dog not on the leash. So I start looking, trying to look at the realistic. What's really going on here? I said, okay, so if they do confront me, I have a point. I could say, mm, I'm not sure it's my fault. So already that changes the scenario in my mind. And then I work it back to all the way. What if it's 0% worst-case scenario? Well, that would mean I never got contacted. It's not an issue. And then at least if I have a solution for all those scenarios, I can kind of say, okay, I know how I'm going to handle it. And then in this case, what happened was I never got contacted. So am I going to spend four days worrying about it Or, for me, that literally was probably a 15 or 20-minute process. Just, okay, I know what I'm going to do. And if I had to pay the person a few bucks, you know, for I was even prepared to do that. Okay, sorry for your luck. Here's a bit of money, you know, to make sure we don't have more trouble. You can do kind of all those kind of things. I think that keeps you out of that. And then I would say the other thing is just, if it is stressing to you, think about it, but put a time limit on for yourself. If you have to write it down, write down something... And then try to focus on something else. So distraction can help too, but you know those are sometimes practical ways. Maybe to so I'm not only thinking in the negative side, um, trying to look at all sides of it.
1: So much we could talk about, and our time is getting away from us. If there's uh, one takeaway you want, or a couple takeaways, as we kind of wrap this thing up, Keith, what would you give us uh, to kind of wrap up the conversation today?
2: Yeah, I just I just think I think this is good. I think us talking about these things hopefully in an honest and open way and I, I kind of think a lot of times we also think we're the only one. Mm-hmm. I'm the only one that's experiencing this or again, nobody can understand what's going on um, and, and I think that's where sometimes by not talking about it, we, we're not always helping ourselves um, but I think that's again where, where, where we go back to. Like to me, that's why Christ is so, so central um, because also uh, we have, a, we have a, a God that suffered, mm-hmm. and he suffers with. He's a with God. Yeah, he's, he's not a two and four God. He, he, he wants, and he's relational. And, 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 and if you haven't had that experience, you need to seek that part out. And that's why if relationships, the visible ones break down, that can be tough, but that doesn't mean that, you know, and, and that's why when Jesus says, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. That means if you've been the abused person, right? Jesus says, when they abused you, they abused me because you were the least. Now, some people feel they're the least, but then that, they stay inside. So they, they don't like themselves because they're the least. But Jesus is saying, you're worth something when you were in that least. That's what I actually died for. Yeah, so, so you don't have to suffer that way anymore. And if you, ha- if you are still suffering, sometimes it's get out. Get out of the situation that's creating harm so that you can heal. And, and Christ is all about that. And God's all about He's the restorer. He's the rescuer. He's, um, you know, and that, that's where, right, he can breathe life back into something that's that even feels dead. Mm-hmm. So.
1: So good. So good. So much to think about and consider the biblical perspective on these. Uh, Keith touched on it several times. The Bible uh, gives you value. You are a created in the image of God. And if you're not a child of God right now, you are created in the image of God. And so you have that value. And if you're a child of God, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and you're a child of God, uh, you have that value. So no matter what you go through no matter what you think about, what your mind is telling you, you can go back to that truth that anchors you. And the Bible always gives us hope. Hope is is a great... Uh, counter to anxiety, because there's always hope in the Bible. Uh, the, God is always on the throne, and he has a plan for you. Even in the, in the worst-case scenario uh, idea, um, if God allows the worst-case scenario in your life for right now, he's going to give you the grace to get through that. And so there's always hope. And so we hope, and it's our prayer, that you will consider a biblical perspective as we all deal with anxiety, anxiety, Uh, and anxiety, anxious thinking, and disorders. Thank you so much, Keith, for joining us today. And thank you uh, for, for bringing those questions to us today. And we hope that you'll consider a biblical perspective.
0: Thanks for listening to the It's Worth a Thought podcast. If you have questions for us or would like further information regarding our episode and the topic we've covered, you can find our contact information in the description. We hope this episode has helped you to see a biblical perspective on some of life's greatest issues, and perhaps consider that the Bible truly is worth a thought.